Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today we get to talk about redlining, what it is, how it impacted home ownership almost a century ago, and how that ties into gentrification patterns today. We get to talk today about redlining. What? (laughs) (laughs) Had you heard of it, right? Like I heard of it only because of this incredible YouTube video that I had watched ages ago. But I didn't know much more than what that what they said. They did a great job explaining it. But then in the context of some of the stuff we're talking about and the legacy of policies we've had in place, it was fascinating putting this episode together. Yeah, I, as we heard about from the past episode, I clearly read and believed everything that was in my US history books. And I had like a vague memory of redlining as something negative, but couldn't tell you really any specific facts about why or how or what it really means today. Yeah, I um, didn't remember it from anything I learned as a child. So here's what it is. And here's why it's important to be aware of it. But in 1934, President FDR, he created the Federal Housing Administration. So it's generally known as the FHA. And that is what provides mortgage insurance on loans made by FHA approved lenders throughout the United States. So this FHA institutionalized the system of discriminatory lending in government backed mortgages is the blatant truth. So this is what happened. In the 1930s, developed by the Homeowners Loan Coalition, government surveyors graded neighborhoods, like literally put grades, not like high to low grading, right? But they scorecarded these neighborhoods, putting them into color-coded maps, indicating the level of security for real estate investments. And they did this in 239 American cities. So these maps were based on assumptions about the community. You know, like when you get a mortgage, you have to fill out the paperwork and you have to prove how much money you make and how responsible you've been with your money and all this sort of stuff in order to get the mortgage. These maps were not at all about the ability of households to satisfy lending criteria. It was all based on assumptions about the community. This discriminatory practice was captured by this homeowners loan coalition map until 1968 when the Fair Housing Act banned racial discrimination in housing. But get this, there were four different grades, four different colors that were given to these neighborhoods. And keep in mind, based on the grade of like the color that you got, you were either approved or denied mortgages. Crazy. That seems like my kid's behavior chart in school. That's <laughs> on a much more egregious level. Yes, because they do have those colors. A, which was green. They were new, very homogenous areas. So basically American business and professional men, Right. These were in demand as residential locations, like they were good. They were the good place to be, regardless of the financial circumstances. Blue, sort of tier B, were, quote, still desirable areas that had reached their peak, but were expected to remain stable for many years. Neighborhood C, the yellow ones, were neighborhoods that were definitely declining. They were more sparsely populated fringe areas that were typically bordering on all black neighborhoods. And then the fourth tier, the red, hence the term redlining, were areas in which, quote, things taking place in the C tier had already happened. Basically, these were black and low income neighborhoods, and they were considered to be the worst for lending. So neighborhoods that were predominantly made up of black people, as well as Catholics, Jews and immigrants from Asia and Southern Europe were deemed undesirable. And get this, 
The FHA publications at the time implied that different races should not share neighborhoods. So their description of some of these tiers were things like neighborhood characteristics, like inharmonious racial or nationality groups, which was just as much of a criteria alongside noxious disseminates like smoke, odors, and fog. That seems insane, but yeah, crazy. In the context of the time, right? Okay, so here's a specific example from Detroit. Like when you talk about how the publication said that they should not share neighborhoods, white families began to settle, right, in Detroit near a black area adjacent to Eight Mile Road. By the 1940s, the blacks were surrounded, but neither they nor the whites could get FHA insurance because of the proximity to those inharmonious racial groups. So in 1941, a white developer built literally a concrete wall between the white and black areas. And then the FHA appraisers came in and took a look and said, okay, well, the white properties can get mortgages now. Like literally a wall was built and the white people got mortgages. This sounds very familiar on the wall front, but that is crazy that the existence of a wall, all things being the same, was enough to get them approved, white people approved for mortgages based on the criteria set out by our government, right? Right, because mortgages are critical, I'd say for the majority of people in order to buy a home. And so when you're not allowed to get loans, if they're unavailable or they're very expensive, it's really difficult for low-income minorities to then buy homes and, and then take part in wealth accumulation. If you look at statistics now from the Federal Reserve, white families now have 10 times the net worth of black families and more than eight times that of Hispanic families. It started back then when they couldn't start building wealth, right? I mean... Right. So true. And I mean, I think that we're going to talk about why this is so important today, because clearly this is what happened in the 30s didn't just stay in the 30s. And yes, it was born out of a time where it was the Great Depression and money was treated, looked at in a very different way. But this is discrimination very clearly. And what those policies systemically put in place we are still handling the after effects today. But let's talk about how people got these mortgages or what you were asked to put on these loan forms, even with those categories of neighborhoods. What were the bankers expected to fill out if you know someone was coming in and looking for a mortgage? In one form, they actually asked for the quote percentage of Negro infiltration of the area for the mortgage. And you had to fill out a number. The banker had to fill out a number from zero to 100, right? It's not something that the individuals who are filling out these forms decided to put in there. It was something that the people filling out these forms were explicitly required to indicate right up there with things like average lot size. So it was just considered another fact to measure about a neighborhood that you would lend into. Right. So looking at some specific examples in Richmond, Virginia, looking at forms, one of the things that you had to fill out on a form like this was about occupation, which makes sense. Right. To some degree. Right. And so remember those gradings of neighborhoods earlier for B and C neighborhoods, graded neighborhoods are often pretty specific about this. They'd say things like railroad men or these are clerical workers 
for an A neighborhoods, sometimes they'd say, you know, something like professional executives, some, like the category that you mentioned, Sarah. Often they'll just say best, right? As if best is an occupation. But it was this, you know, hearkening back to sort of the old South, the Civil War Reconstruction South, that those at the top, it doesn't really matter what you do because you're old money. You've got that wealth. You've got that generational wealth. They're not new wealth where they would need to work. But for the African-American inputs, all of them, with just one exception on these forms, just say Negro. Like that's a job. Right. Huh. Yeah. So these forms, the forms themselves, and we have there, we have these copies of these forms. So we know that this actually happened. And this was the foundation for this systemic discrimination in terms of lending and mortgages and neighborhood construction in this time period. And that really reminds me, I mean, we often talk about Robin DiAngelo's white fragility. And I think she really makes a point of using words carefully and clearly articulating that when she speaks about racism, it's not necessarily about good, bad, individual acts. It's about the institutions that we have been raised in as Americans. It's about the policies that were put in place historically in our country. And this is a clear indication of that type of racism in our institutions and in our history that created like different opportunities and huge income gaps and you know, completely, just basically, that is her definition of racism. This is what we're talking about. It's not about the individual banker going in and saying, well, and doing things that are discriminatory or prejudiced as an individual. It is institutionalized at this level. Right. It's the fact that this they had to fill those out at the forms, the form level. They weren't writing the forms. Those forms were there. And those forms were needed because of the federal policies that required them to put in discriminatory information. So that is such an important point to make. Right. But this is from before World War II. Like that's when people were having to fill out these forms. And that was done sort of by 1948. So the effects should be done, right? Mm. Not so much. Not so much. Yep. I think they basically said that there was a 2018 study by the National Community Reinvestment Coalition that showed that the vast majority of neighborhoods that were marked hazardous in red ink on those maps drawn back in, you know, between 1935 and 1939 are much more likely now than other areas to still have lower income minority residents. Yeah, the NCRC, which Sarah just mentioned, the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, is a consumer advocacy group. And they're in this study, they found that three out of four neighborhoods that were redlined on those government maps 80 years ago continue to struggle economically. I guess that makes sense, right? Because as they say, homeownership is the number one method of accumulating wealth. But the effect of those policies that created more hurdles for the poor is a permanent underclass that's disproportionately minority. And this is from John Taylor, who's president and chief executive of the NCRC. And that's something that passes on generation to generation to generation, right? Because on the flip side, 91% of the areas classified as best in the 1930s remain middle to upper income today, and 85% of them are still predominantly white. Wow. 
that does not indicate a lot of change, right, from those original 1930s decisions to today, 2019. Right. And I think John Taylor went on to say, I think most people believe the problem is not with the rules, but with the people. Like, right, you'd be like, well, come on, if you work hard, you can move out of that neighborhood. But most of middle class whites in America, this is again, a quote from John Taylor says, they don't have empirical observations of what happens in underserved neighborhoods or understand the historical treatment of poor and minority communities. That awareness is missing is basically what he's saying. Right, because if you lived in a community that was classified as one of the best communities or even, you know, a B community, B grade community back from the 30s, you may never have really thought about these issues because they may never have touched you personally. And I think that, you know, you and I both believe that examples are always a great way to sort of further illustrate this concept. So I think that in that researchers have found that redline neighborhoods in the South and the West are more likely today to be home to a largely minority population, especially in the South and the Midwest. So let's talk about a couple examples there. In Macon, Georgia, so the South, 65% of neighborhoods were marked hazardous in the 1930s, 65%, making it the most redlined city in the United States, followed closely by Birmingham, Alabama, and Wichita, Kansas. So 91% of redline neighborhoods are inhabited by mostly minorities. 73% of such neighborhoods remain low to moderate income today. Whites, on the other hand, remain the overwhelming majority in Macon neighborhoods deemed best in the 1930s, all of which notably remain middle to upper income. To look on a comparative scale, nearly 35% of Blacks in Macon live in poverty today, compared with less than 13% of whites. So that's almost three times as many, according to census data from the 2012 and 2016 census. Right. And then moving north to Baltimore, one of the earliest cities to officially adopt restrictive covenants limiting African-Americans and Jews to certain neighborhoods. Nearly every census tract labeled hazardous in the 1930s remains low to moderate income today. The only exceptions are the areas surrounding Baltimore's harbor, a former industrial front that's been redeveloped to attract businesses and tourism. Hmm. Hmm. And we're going to talk about that phenomenon in a second. Yes, gentrification. Um, Here we come. (laughs) Nearly 70% of formerly redlined communities in Baltimore remain predominantly minority, as well as lower income. Even neighborhoods in western Baltimore that had been rated as desirable subsequently became populated with minority low-income residents as middle-class whites fled to the suburbs, the white flight. And then finally, a 2015 study of home mortgage and small business lending in Baltimore by that same consumer advocacy group, the NCRC, found that race, more than income, affected mortgage lending in the city. Lending is greater in neighborhoods with larger white populations, with banks making more than twice as many mortgage loans to whites as they did to blacks. And it's kind of hard to argue that that, if you didn't know the history Sure, maybe it's, you know, it's what happens today. But looking at the history, seems like that has been a pattern and practice that has been systemically accepted for 80 years. Because that, the number you just said, I mean, that was from 2015. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So not the 1930s. There might not be forms that you're filling out in the same way. With your job. Gosh. Right. But the disparate impact is still the same. 
And then a February report by the Center for Investigative Reporting showed that redlining persists in 61 metro areas from Detroit and Philadelphia, Detroit, the wall that we talked about earlier in Philadelphia, to Little Rock and Tacoma, Washington, even when controlling for applicants' income, loan amount, and neighborhood according to its analysis of Home Mortgage Disclosure Act records. So think about that. You control for their income, their loan amount, and their neighborhood. You still have the after effects of redlining there. Because those, as we talked about, and you talked about at the start, Sarah, what's important when you fill out a mortgage application, you know, for those loan documents. If you're controlling for all of those, you know, income, loan amount, neighborhood, you're looking and there is still the effects of redlining. You are looking at a systemic issue. Right. And at that point, are you talking about redlining as race? Is that basically because redlining, as I originally thought about it, was about geographic neighborhood? Right. But I think that, oh, well, but the part of the geographic neighborhood and part of the criteria for those red neighborhoods were, you know, looking at the mixing of races, right? And so, yeah, so this is, you know, segregation in some ways in keeping minorities and people who don't look like, you know, the majority in poorer neighborhoods less likely to get help, right? And so I'm curious, what does this mean for getting mortgages today? Because you just talked about the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. And I think, I mean, there's some in some recent movement around this that kind of got thwarted. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. So banks have largely blamed these racial lending discrepancies on borrowers' credit scores, right? Because that is a big component of a lot of stuff that you do, right? Getting credit on all levels from a store credit card to a mortgage. So lenders were supposed to soon start reporting extra information about credit scores and other loan pricing features. But in 2018, the Senate voted to roll back the new reporting requirements for small lenders. And why this is important is because that is a rollback of some of the provisions of the Dodd-Frank Act, which deal with lending. And one of the smaller provisions of the Dodd-Frank Act helps to alleviate discrimination in lending by having lenders report statistics about who they're lending to. But if you're not requiring smaller lenders to report statistics, where is the check on a lender deciding that "Mm, I'm not going to lend money to African-American applicants or, you know, an Asian applicant or anyone that I really don't feel like lending money to because no one's going to check me on that in a real way? So those rollbacks were really important in terms of loosening provisions that were meant to prevent discrimination. So there's been movement recently to try and get that back in and make sure that lenders are held accountable. So we'll see how that goes. Okay, that's interesting. I didn't realize that that was really happening. Yeah, so crazy. But I think the flip side of redlining in some ways, not totally the flip side, is gentrification. Right. And we talk a lot about that. Like you see a lot of that in stories, right? But you guys all know gentrification, right? Basically, neighborhoods that weren't so great are getting spruced up and prices are going up because they become more desirable because the infrastructure that could not previously be in place because the money wasn't there, all of a sudden the money's coming in. And what happens? There is a problem with gentrification because it seemed like, oh, well, it's urban revitalization. I mean, that's what I hear a lot of. Oh, it's so great to see a previously downtrodden area get spruced up and we can, more people can go and use that area. 
and move into that area, right? Right. It gets, you know, you get some new businesses in there. Cool new restaurants or bars or whatever. Yeah. You know, or co-working spaces or something. And you also get architecture sort of gets a facelift and you get, it just visually looks like a place you want to go. So I think the researchers analyzed 30 cities for patterns of gentrification, where these once red line neighborhoods showed an increase in medium home values and educational attainment. And this was done in the decade between 2000 and 2010. And they found that in cities with higher levels of gentrification, more red line neighborhoods had become middle to upper income neighborhoods. I mean, like we just talked about, they saw a greater influx in economic activity, changes to their downtowns. They did have lower levels of segregation with more interaction between blacks and whites, as well as greater economic inequality between newcomers and those who had historically lived there. And I think that's the problem, right? You have a greater economic inequality. Right. So you may have more interaction between groups of people that were largely kept separate, you know, by neighborhood, but that doesn't fix the income inequality because this is the problem with gentrification. Middle and upper income gentrifiers moving into lower income areas are able to get those loans to buy and renovate homes, whereas longtime residents don't have access to that capital. Right. And that's, again, because there's no oversight. People can feel free to people. By that, I mean the banks could be doing stuff that they shouldn't be based solely on the numbers or credit or anything, right? I mean, so, but here's the problem with gentrification, right? Middle and upper income gentrifiers are moving into these lower income areas and they can still get loans to buy and renovate homes while people who've always been living in those areas rarely have access to that type of capital. So it is happening in Portland and it's seen an influx of financial investment from the tech center. It is the most gentrified American city with 58% of its census tracts having been gentrified. In terms of other cities in the United States, it's followed by Minneapolis, Seattle, Atlanta, and Denver. Interesting. Denver. Uh-huh. And I really want to look into some specific areas here, actually, that have a history of redlining, because you can really see it in certain areas. And there's huge urban revitalization going on right now. That'd be really interesting for me to look at. But where was the least gentrified city? Yeah, and we're back to Detroit. Detroit was the least gentrified city, the research showed, with less than 3% of its census tracts having gentrified and only around the downtown core. But artists and other, quote, urban pioneers, I'm not even sure what that means, urban pioneers, but it sounds pretty fancy, have in recent years begun moving into more pockets of the city. So they might not be the least gentrified city for long. Interesting. What happens to people who've always lived in these neighborhoods and then all of a sudden, you know, the new businesses are moving in and homes are being revitalized and all that sort of stuff? It's sad, right? Like they get pushed out. Yeah, because rents go up, right? Property tax goes up. So even if you are able to have previously owned a home in the area, you might be looking at rising property taxes and wondering if that's really worth it for you. You might be tempted to sell and get out. So is this really sustainable, though? You know, and I think that's a question we need to ask about gentrification broadly. And the New York Times had a great article recently about it 
about the neon green door of gentrification. And the premise behind the article was that architecture is often the first sign of a neighborhood being gentrified. And these sort of trendy colored door options that are a part of, you know, this neighborhood's architectural changes has sort of become a signal of gentrification. And it often signals white buyers and non-whites being forced out. For example, in South Park, which is a predominantly minority neighborhood outside of Raleigh, North Carolina, the new mortgages in that area are going heavily to whites. Nine out of 10 new mortgages in that area are being given to white people. So that is going to substantially change the racial composition of that area and probably a lot of other things as well. That is interesting. I mean, I have so many questions about that because then people who can't afford that have to continue to move into less desirable areas in theory, because those would be the places where they can afford to have a roof over their heads, right? Or can people maybe not even, is that what leads to an increase in homelessness? Because sometimes if you, you know, the rent prices go up and you can't afford it and you don't have savings, how do you actually physically get yourself anywhere else Right. And I think that's, I mean, it's different, but it reminded me of the book on the opioid crisis. Uh, was it Dreamland or, and then there was Hillbilly Elegy, right? Where they talked about people, once you're in an area, I know it's different than this conversation a little bit, but they talk about if you don't, you still, you know, in a, are in a drug laden small neighborhood that is hooked on opioids and you want to get out, but you literally can't have, like, you need gas money to get out. You need some level of money in order to allow for mobility. And if this place, this area of that your family has traditionally lived in for generations is now you're getting priced out of, how do you actually find a home that you can afford? Right. And then where, how can you build generational wealth, right? I think that is what we talked about at the start of this conversation too. The importance of generational wealth, the importance of owning a home or having property as linked to that ability to build wealth. And especially if you're dealing with minorities who have largely not been able to amass generational wealth in the same way as whites in this country due to a lot of systemic issues, how is gentrification and sort of pushing people out and creating segregation in other ways, how is that going to affect that process? That's a really good question. I don't know what the answer is, but I'm interested in toying with these questions. Exactly. So along with these questions, what are our next steps? If you've heard redlining, you are understanding a little bit more about redlining and, and want to do something. I guess, I mean, that's learn about what's happening in your own city. You know, look around at the impact of gentrification. What have you noticed? You know, what kind of policies are lawmakers considering in your area to address some of the movement that is having to happen because of the legacy of discriminatory lending practices basically from a century ago. I mean, generational wealth and all of that. Basically, it's infrastructure that has created a lot of this issue. So what are people in positions of power considering doing? Right. And I think I know locally, we have state bills that uh, directly deal with housing and how what is being zoned for what and, you know, different housing plans, even along the peninsula for the Bay Area. So I encourage you to know what's on the ballot 
And if you feel that this is not going to be positive, given everything that we've talked about, really work on educating yourself and others and going to those community meetings about these things. Totally. All right, cool. I want to post on social media that YouTube video that was really well done about redlining, which is where I first learned about it. We'll post a couple of other things out there too, further reading and further consideration. Yes. All right, cool. We'll talk again soon. All right. Sounds great. If you love what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review while you're at it. Also, if you're looking for some great email, who isn't, sign up on our website, dearwhitewomen.com, and get our weekly email every Wednesday that gives you special bonus insider tips. You can also find us on social media. Sarah, can you tell us where to find? Absolutely. On Facebook and Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and on Twitter at DWW Podcast. Find us there.